Welcome to the Theology Matters podcast. I'm Josh Malden, host of the podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome our distinguished guest, Professor N.T. Wright. Professor Wright is a research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews and senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. Prior to that, he was Bishop of Durham and Canon Theologian of Westminster. Professor Wright is the author of over 80 books, including a recent volume that will be the subject of our discussion today, a book titled God and the Pandemic, a Christian reflection on the coronavirus and its aftermath. And in this uh, podcast series, we're looking at theology and the pandemic. So this book is very much on point. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Wright. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Perhaps we could start with a question, just what led you to write this book and what has the response been so far? Well, it, it, it happened by accident as far as I was concerned. When the whole pandemic thing struck, I was very busy with quite other tasks. Finishing a commentary on Galatians was the, the prime one, though there were other things as well. And so I just thought, I'm just not going to comment on this. I'm going to stay locked down. My wife and I will hunker down here and I will get on with my work. And I then got a call from Time magazine saying, would I write a short piece, um, a Christian reflection on the coronavirus? They just wanted 800 words. And initially I thought, no, I can't do that. And then during the day, uh, after I got that request, I thought, do you know, I think something like this needs to be said and we need to stress the call to lament, which I, which I wasn't hearing. And so I just dashed off a quick little piece, which then got a lot of feedback from people saying, oh, it looks as though N.T. Wright has given up the Bible because it's quite clear that, according to the prophet Amos, that when something like this happens, it's because God's people have sinned and failed and they need to repent, and, and people were listing all the sins that we ought to repent of because of this. Um, and I thought, well, that's a bit odd because uh, I think Job would have had something to say to that, and so on and so on. And then I was asked to do a lecture for uh, a friend's church in New York um, online, um, because I preached there a few times, and so I know some of the folk. And so um, I, I did the lecture and then got some Q&A from the audience there. And the more I did that sort of thing, and one or two other little things like that, the more I thought, actually, I want to say something here, which I'm not hearing from anyone else. So I said to my publishers, how about I rough out something like this? It'll just be a little book, maybe a long article. And they said, go for it and see what happens. And so I did. Uh, and so this is what happens. And I've had good feedback. People have written and thanked me. Um, I understand. I mean, I don't see Twitter and Facebook and that sort of thing. I, I stay off that. But I understand there has been a lot of positive, but also some negative pushback of people saying, oh, it's obvious what this pandemic is all about. And part of the point of the book is to say it isn't as obvious as some people seem to think it is. And, and I'm trying to, it's basically I'm trying to think biblically about a crisis like this. And thinking biblically, is not actually as easy as it sounds until you get used to how the flow of the Bible works. Anyway, so that's how it all happened. And it was very sudden. I didn't expect to do it. And here it is. I've got a copy of it on my desk. And I look at it and think, hmm, where did that come from? Yeah, I was doing something else at the time. <laughs> there it is. Absolutely. You mentioned lament as mm. in the book as perhaps the initial response of that is required to be followed, you know, by service to those in need. But but sticking with lament for a moment, could you say more about that in the Christian tradition? Yeah, I mean, I think from the very beginning, Christians have known that among our imperatives are rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Um, that the Christian is not to be stoic, detached and removed from the emotions that are going on. Rather, emotions are God-given 
and we are to celebrate where there is something to celebrate. And you know, if people are having a party, then join in, do it wisely, but join in. And if, if there's a funeral, if people are weeping, if there's a great tragedy, then the Christians should be right there in the middle of it and, and lamenting and weeping with that. And of course, we have in scripture, the Psalms and the Book of Lamentations and so on, which are great poetic laments and which Jesus himself and Paul himself drew on in their own reflections, both about themselves. Jesus talks about um, his own forthcoming fate uh, using language from the Psalms. And then on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. And it seems to me if Jesus and Paul use these Psalms in this way, then we should be prepared to do so as well. And I suspect we should actually help one another by developing small or large liturgies of lament, either for personal or corporate use. And I do know some churches that, that actually do that as a way of saying to the congregation, but also to the larger communities. Um, we Christians don't believe that everything in this world is just happy and trundling along as it should be. The world is out of joint. Paul says it's groaning in travail. And the appropriate response to the world in travail is not to say, oh, we've got the solutions. We know what's going on. We have a rationalistic faith which explains everything. But to say, look, even the spirit groans without words, according to Paul. And if that's so, then our lament in the words of the Psalms is just a way of laying the way things are in the presence of the God in whom we continue to trust, even though we don't see the answers. And, and, and that is, see, I, I feel that in myself on a number of issues that this is something I have to learn to do again and again. I am not in control. I believe that God is, but believing that doesn't mean that I can see how that works. And that's where lament comes in. One of the themes that's throughout the book is that, asking the question of why this has happened, whether we ask it as a question of why would God allow it to happen in a theological rest register, or even to some extent focusing on blaming who's responsible and in and, and a more secular sense, we might even focus on why this happened by pointing to various uh, people who are responsible. You want us to focus more on the what, and that is to say what can be done now going forward to help those in need. Yeah, uh, I, I was very struck as I started to reflect on this, and people were saying, um, well, surely, um, as I said before, not only the prophet Amos, but many places in scripture say, basically, you're suffering because you sinned. Um, and uh, some of the Psalms appear to say that. And then other Psalms like Psalm 44 say, uh -uh, no, it wasn't because we've sinned and we don't know why this is happening. And that's an OK place to be in the presence of God. But then you get in, say, John 9, Jesus' disciples saying, why was this man born blind? Was it he who sinned or his parents? And Jesus saying, no, it wasn't anything like that. It's just so that the works of God might be revealed in him. In other words, don't go back and look for causes. Look and see what new thing God is going to do in this situation now. And then particularly I was struck by, um, and it's a fascinating little vignette, which most Christians don't reflect on, I think, in Acts chapter 11, um, the disciples in Antioch hear that there's going to be a great famine. A prophet comes along and tells them so. And the prophet doesn't say, this is happening because you've sinned. And they don't say, oh, is it us or our rulers or whoever that have sinned? Nor do they say, oh, this must be a sign that Jesus is coming back. They're quite feet on the ground pragmatic. They say, who is going to be most at risk? Answer, in this case, the Jerusalem church who are being persecuted and are poor. So what can we do to help? Answer, send them money. And who shall we send? Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. 
And I see that then acted out in the church over the subsequent centuries, that when you get an epidemic in a city or a pandemic in a region, southern Turkey or somewhere, the, the rich and the well-to-do, including the doctors, get out and run, and the church doesn't preach to people about how this shows how wicked we are. That's, that's, just, that's a pagan reaction, actually. It's pagans who say, oh, there's a fire or a famine or a flood or something. This means that the gods are angry and we've got to find out which god we have to placate. The Christians don't do that. They get on and they nurse people and they find ways of caring for people outside their immediate, own immediate community. And that's one of the reasons, actually, why many people became Christians in the second and third and fourth centuries, even though it was so countercultural at the time. So that's the Christian imperative, not try and find a rationalistic answer as to why we got there, as though that would solve anything, but say, now, what new thing is God going to do? And how can we be part of that healing work? Are you seeing Christian communities and other religious communities, perhaps, especially in Great Britain, uh, acting in that way? Certainly, and my parade example at the moment, and not everyone knows this, I think, and I, I only know it by accident, is that uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who lives in Lambeth Palace across the River Thames from the Houses of Parliament, lives right next door to St. Thomas's Hospital, which is right there on the South Bank. And he has been quietly volunteering as an extra chaplain on the COVID wards putting on the protective equipment, going and ministering to people who are dying, um, praying with doctors and nurses, being available. And that sends a great message, actually, insofar as it's known, but just as a practical and symbolic sign of the presence of the church where the pain is at the most intense. And I, I honor that. I think it's a wonderful example. But also, one of the fascinating things, as various... Um, public intellectual commentators have observed, is that over the last couple of hundred years, the post-Enlightenment Western world has actually borrowed a lot of Christian imperatives about caring for the poor and the sick and doing public education, so, which used to be only the church doing that. And so now the secular authorities try and do it. And many doctors and nurses who don't profess any particular faith themselves have been acting out that same impulse. And it's as though some of the Christian imperative has got into the bloodstream of world culture, which is an extraordinary thing, granted what else is going on in the world. But of course, in the middle of that, there are Christians doing all sorts of wonderful things. And you know, if it's real, it's local. This means people uh, being aware of neighbors who are disadvantaged and so on. And my wife and I are over 70. We're supposed to be more at risk. There's a younger family just down the road from us who are uh, good, faithful Christians. They got in touch with us right at the beginning to say, can we help get groceries delivered or anything? And, and so it's, it's stuff like that, which is going on at the local level as well as at the larger scale. And, and like many things in the kingdom of God, there's an awful lot that's happening which you don't actually see at the time, but you hear about afterwards, and I'm hearing little bits here and there. So that, that's how it works. Absolutely. Toward the end of the book, you suggest that we might think about this time in the, the biblical concept of exile. Yeah. And I thought I might ask you to speak more about that very sort of... Well, way. yes. I mean, one of the great Psalms of Lament is 137, which is, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. 
when we remembered Zion. And our captors mocked us and said, can't you sing this one of the Jerusalem songs? Because we'd like to hear how you sing in your temple. They say, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And, and for me, um, particularly, I mean, I, I have loved worshipping in traditional great churches and small churches and urban ones and rural ones all my life. And to be told you can't go into a church building and you can't kneel down and say your prayers along with your brothers and sisters and you can't attend the Eucharist and receive the bread and the wine. This is, this is how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And the answer is, oh, we'll put on Zoom services or Teams, meet, Microsoft Teams meetings or whatever. And so you sit in your own bedroom or living room or whatever with a screen and somebody is doing a liturgy on the screen. And I think by now we've all got a bit fed up with that. It's better than nothing. And thank God for the technology which has enabled us to do it. But there's this great sense of deprivation that we belong in, metaphorically speaking, in the New Jerusalem with our brothers and sisters. Christianity is a team sport, not a Microsoft Teams sport, as I've said once or twice recently. Um, <laughs> if you think of you know, all, the, all the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc., all of these require a community to practice them. And so there's a sense of deprivation um, uh, that lockdown produces, and it makes you realize how much the community actually matters. Uh, and, and then particularly, of course, for many people, um, folk that they love and have been close to have died during this time, either from the horrible disease itself or just from old age or whatever, and they can't do funerals because the churches are only allowed to have four or five people there. And there was a whole family wanted to come and see this dear friend off or this family member. And so this sense of deprivation has just run through society at several different levels. And for me saying this is a time of exile names that problem and enables me to say, okay, it's very unpleasant, but in the great scriptural tradition, we should actually know about exile. This is something that has happened and does happen. And even though there's the great exile from Babylon through to the time of Jesus, there are smaller exiles. And if we are called to live through one of those and learn to lament again through one of those, then if that's what God is saying to us, we have to get on and learn that lesson. But, but for me, naming it actually helps. It means well, this is very unpleasant, but at least I know what the address is right now. Absolutely. There's a, a passage you quote that I want to read from Martin Luther that he wrote during a time of, of plague. And Luther wrote, With God's permission, the enemy has sent poison and deadly dung among us, and so I will pray to God that he may be gracious and preserve us. Then I will fumigate to pur purify the air, give and take medicine, and avoid places and persons where I, I am not needed in order that I may not abuse myself and that through me others may not be infected and inflamed with the result that I may become the cause of their death through my negligence. If God wishes to take me, he will be able to find me. At least I have done what he gave me to do and I am responsible neither for my own death nor for the death of others. But if my neighbor needs me, I shall avoid neither person nor place, but feel free to visit and help him. 
It's, it's a wonderful line. And actually, um, I possess from when I was a student uh, a, a volume from which I've quoted that called Luther's Letters of Spiritual Counsel. And quite a lot of those letters are actually about this kind of situation. And I could have quoted page after page, and that was just one very juicy bit. Um, and, and it seems to me that this is, I think, Luther at his best. He's thinking on his feet. He is prayerful, he's realistic, he's totally trusting God, but he also sees very clearly that there's no point in being kind of um, so heavenly minded that you're no earthly use. I mean, some Christians I gather have been saying, oh, Jesus is my vaccine, um, the devil can't get into churches, um, blah, 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 blah. So uh, taking, taking a, a, an extraordinary casual attitude to one's own health and other people's, um, and Luther is very clear, and he didn't know about germs. I mean, modern medical research was just hadn't begun when he was writing this, but he's aware that stuff spreads through human contact and maybe other ways as well. So he says, I don't know, I might be carrying this, so I'm not going to go somewhere where, where I don't need to go in case I am the cause of someone else's death. And likewise, I don't need to go to certain places where I might catch it either. And as he says, if it's my time to go, God knows where to find me. And that's, that's a wonderfully realistic um, uh, uh, approach. But it's also deeply rooted in scripture that constantly there's, my neighbor may need me here. And so if there is an act of love and mercy, which I have to perform, then I will go and do it. And I will pray that all will be well through that. So I really respect that. And obviously in my own scholarly work and reading of Paul and so on, I have been critical of Luther in some ways, um, though his agenda is mine, namely find out what the Bible says as best you can and get on and teach it. And that's what I've tried to do all my life. But here I love this sort of pastoral sense. And by sense, I mean not just an intuition, but pastoral good common sense, rooted in scripture, focused on the neighbor, um, prayerful, trusting God. It's a great combination. Maybe just as a final question and kind of building on that, toward the end of the book, you, you name a tension that you see Christians and perhaps other religious people having to live with, which is on the one hand, being responsible to the society, not gathering for religious observance without any concern for what the effects might be on one another, but also on, on the, the rest of the society and, and needing to take take care in that regard. And then on the other hand, you're, you're saying there is, a, there is a danger, though, that we'll sort of feed into the idea that religion is purely private and there is no need for any kind of gathering longer term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was chatting with a friend just uh, yesterday or today, I forget, um, about the, certainly in Britain, the role that churches have on the streets of our cities and towns and what it would be like if they just magically vanished overnight. Would people notice, would people mind? And, and all the signs are, there's a lot of people who don't necessarily attend church themselves, are kind of glad it's there, and a certain moment in their life, suddenly they tune in and they realize, oh my, this represents something which I really need, and I'm not sure how to plug into it, but, but we, need to, we need to do that. And I, in my public ministry, have run into this many, many times. 
Um, and the danger if worship becomes something we do in front of a screen at home is that people say, well, those buildings, they're far too expensive to keep up. Maybe we should just have all our services online and just keep a few places like Westminster Abbey where we can go for great national celebrations. I'm not so, nobody's actually saying that, but at a time when, yes, buildings are costly to maintain, then um, many people naturally slide into thinking, well, worship is a spiritual matter anyway. So as long as I'm um, worshiping God, um, wherever I am, in my bedroom, my living room, and, and as long as I join in online with other people, that'll be fine, won't it? And I said in another interview not long ago that I kind of ca encapsulated it, that e-worship leads to p-worship, that is electronic worship, leads to a kind of platonic flight of the alone to the alone. And that's the point where genuine Christianity says, absolutely not, we belong there. And what's more, having the churches on the street in our towns and cities and villages and having people coming and going and just generally giving out a sense that this is a place which is there for you. That's really, really important. And you see, I think a lot of people, particularly in the evangelical tradition, have seen old fusty church buildings and, and elderly people there and so on. And think, well, that's not real Christianity, uh, though actually a lot of it is, but um, leave that to the side for the moment. And they think we, we, we've got to be out there doing stuff. And of course we have. But the churches, church buildings were never designed as a retreat from the world. They were always designed as a bridgehead into the world. The God who made the world and who has redeemed it in Jesus and indwells it by his spirit, God claims the whole creation. Um, C.S. Lewis has a line, and other theologians have said this as well, every square inch of space and every split second of time is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And church buildings are a sign of God's claim on the whole creation. That's why they should be outward facing. We go into worship in order to go out into the community. And if that rhythm is taking place, there is a health about it. And if we retreat from that, oh, we don't need those buildings, we can just do it on Zoom or whatever, then something very precious and important is lost. And certainly in my culture, there are many people who think that Christianity is a kind of leisure activity for people who like that sort of thing. Like, you know, some people play bridge or some people go golfing on the weekends. And, oh, and some people say their prayers or sing hymns as though they're the same kinds of things. And actually, Worship is far more important than that, and, and ancient paganism knew that, and, and the other great so-called religions know that, and, and, and we should be sure that at a time like this, we are working back to that and not retreating from it. Professor Wright, I want to thank you for being on the podcast to discuss your recent book. Here it is, God in the Pandemic, A Christian Reflection on the Coronavirus and Its Aftermath. I commend this book to our listeners as a, a profound meditation from a theological perspective on this difficult crisis that is impacting us all. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. And my greetings to all my friends at CTI and in their expanded circles. Thank you.